<laughs> For those who don't know me, I'm Scott Hill. I'm part of the teaching team here. Um, generally, I'm, I'm not really around during the normal sort of seasons, but summertime, I'm a bit freer, and uh, Rob and everyone's away, so you're relying on Derek and me to kind of keep things going. Um, so yeah, so let's just pray briefly, and um, we'll get stuck into what God has to say for us today. Yeah, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to um, quicken us, um, still us, and give us a bit of hunger again um, for your word. Amen. So, and if, I don't know, the kids might all be gone, or if they're around, uh, they may not have been hearing, but if they can hear, or if they want to, um, a little activity which we'll return back to is that if you can get a piece of paper and draw your hand, but make it kind of fat like sausage finger hand, and try and think of five things, so five fingers, that are the most important to you in your life. If you people can do that, or adults can do it as well. Um, and we'll return to that later on. There'll be a picture later on with a, with a hand, um, and that you'll know that's that cue. And I might, if people are up for it, kids are up for it, I might ask you a little bit about that. So just that's a little little something, or else they might say nothing. So that's it. Um, so we are starting a kind of new series of uh, lectionary in the Gospel of Luke. And who was here last week for Scott Evans's talk? Was anyone there? It was a few people, not too many. But it's really recommended to listen to the podcast because he did a fantastic introduction to the series. And in, in very short, um, it, it, just to give you a bit of a short, short background to it, it's really interesting because all the Gospels have generally three sections to them. They have Jesus growing up in Galilee, which is north, north of Israel. They have a kind of transition period where Jesus moves from Galilee through the middle of the country, which is Samaria, and out the other end, the third section is his, his sort of final days in Jerusalem. And most of the three, three of the gospel writers would spend a lot on the Galilee and a lot on the Jerusalem, not too much in the middle sections, just a, a means to get to the big part, part of, the, of the story. But Luke is different. He spends a good bit of time in this in-between place, in this place of transition, this place of journey. He spends about 10 chapters on it, massive. And this is really just over about seven or eight days, a mix of stories, of events, of encounters of Jesus, often not even formal. There's not much synagogue work. There's not much uh, temple work. It's just informal conversations about what it means to be on the way with Jesus in our lives. It's kind of ordinary things and questions people come up to him. He spends time in people's houses. He tells parables and stories. And I think, and through a lot of this location is through a place called Samaria. It's not seen as a holy place for Jewish people. It's seen as an ordinary place, a means of getting through if you have to, to get to the important places of Jerusalem. It can also be a hostile place. I think it's a great image even for many of us who, you know, maybe Sundays like a Jerusalem. Hello, Phoebe. And, uh, and for many of us, the rest of the week is, um, is our Samaria lives, just getting through it. Places that are a bit ordinary or a bit hostile or a bit interesting. This is my daughter, by the way, so she'll hang out here for a bit. I never wanted to be that preacher with their daughter coming up, but it started now, so sorry about that. Isn't he a great dad? Wow. No, I, I, anyway. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So look, in conclusion, my line is this. You know, Jesus takes the time to tell stories that prepare his followers to bring the ordinariness of their lives into conscious awareness and participation in this kingdom life. And we really sang about that today, and Sherry really prayed about that. So let's read the passage and I forgot to bring it up. So let's, yeah, so Luke 9. It's really nice. 
Cool. Okay. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. Thanks, Naomi. Good. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Kind of a harsh, tough sort of interactions there. But for me, the first of all was the contrast between the very first verse of this passage and the last verse. So in verse 51, it talks about Jesus intently setting his face towards Jerusalem. And in verse 62, it looks about this guy plowing. I don't know if anyone's plowed um, with oxen. I, I haven't, but um, I guess you wanna, if you want to do a nice straight line, you want to keep focus on that. But it talks about a man plowing, kind of looking back as well. And this contrast between Jesus being very focused where he's going and this guy kind of, or woman who's plowing, kind of not really that focused. And when I looked up the kind of different translations of that word, Jesus fixed himself, his face towards Jerusalem. They use loads of different words. He intently looked towards Jerusalem. He steadfastly, he was determined, he set himself. And the guy with the plow, I'd more looks like he's looking back, having second thoughts, being in two minds. And I want to say the difference between Jesus' posture at the start of this passage and the person at the end difference one word I want to use is commitment so Jesus is really saying to them in this very harsh way to us if you truly want to follow me you must be committed to following me not just be a little involved but fully committed I was uh, speaking as Derek said earlier on in the service so I was always thinking trying to get a, a little joke or two to to connect with them um, and I was sort of looking up definitions of commitment and one quote apparently from Martina Navratilova the fam famous tennis player and I think we know with lots of um athletes and stuff like that, they're very committed. And they asked her, you know, what, what's, what's commitment? What's the difference? She says, well, the difference between commitment and involvement is like between, you know, chickens and pigs. They're like, okay, well, you know, chickens are just involved. They lay eggs, but, but pigs, they're very much committed. And there uh, was silence for a while. And then one guy got it. Oh, yeah, no, you had to kill him. Okay. So uh, I decided not to say that joke to you, but I obviously did then. Um, but really, the key to any successful goal, endeavor, or any relationship is commitment. But yeah, commitment is kind of one of those ones that gets a bit negative press. I remember, when was it, 12, 13 years ago, I was wondering, would I marry my wife, Zoe? And I remember, it's like, yeah, no, I think I will, but I'll have a little chat with my dad while I ask her out. So I remember in the car with my dad, and I said, oh, yeah, no, like, I think I'm going to ask Zoe out to marry me. And uh, I was thinking dad would go, yeah, definitely, she's an amazing woman. You'd be a fool not to commit to that. Go for it. Um, 
you know, we'd love her to have a daughter-in-law like her. So I said that. He, he was like, oh, yeah, no, no, fair enough. I was like, but so I'm thinking of doing it, but I, just the whole commitment thing, you know, like, Jenny Mack, like, that's it then, isn't it? And he was just saying, yeah, I remember your older brother was a bit like that as well. He had that issue with commitment. I was oh, great. And then he sort of said, yeah, and actually, I remember when I was thinking of marrying your mother, I had the same thing as well. So maybe this thing about commitment, and I sort of, and I think with, with a lot of us, it's like if we're commit to something, we're saying no to everything else. It's sort of the the FOMO, the fear of missing out on other things. It's the the the, the kind of wanting to keep our options open. You know, I was talking to the lay reader in our other congregation. He says, "Yeah, look, it's so hard to get people to commit to volunteering anymore. It's just very hard." But yet we know at the same time that commitment is really is so important, you know, like, like in times when my relationship with Zoe, our marriage isn't so good, one of the re- main reasons for that is that I'm not fully committed. So yeah, I'm kind of there just ticking the boxes, but when I'm fully committed to that, that's when the relationship goes well. You know, I, like, I think sometimes the opposite to commitment is kind of a superficiality. We, it's kind of, we want everything. We want a bit of breadth of everything. Commitment is more like narrow, but it's depth. It's depth of, of relationship, it's depth of engagement, it's, it's depth of prayer, it's committing, showing up, full-hearted, full presence, full mind. And I remember reading Richard Rohr says it is, God is found in the depths of things. Whether it's going deep with our own works, our own issues, deep in our relationships, deep in prayer, deep in scripture, committing to those things. There's great reward. The challenge of commitment, though. So we meet these three followers. We got the, oh, and maybe there's a quote there as well, Naomi. I think put that up there. Yes, so I'll just throw Abraham Lincoln. Commitment is what transforms a promise into reality. And it's so true, this, isn't it? Like, you know, I remember, I think it was like second year in college, and uh, I was doing an essay one night, and uh, a couple of friends called over. It was late night. The essay was due the next day. It was probably about midnight. They called over and said, do you want to go out tonight? I'm like, yeah, okay. And I did. And... Uh, the essay wasn't very good. There was no commitment there. Um, but if I wanted to do a good commitment to those things, I would have to say yes. Or, you know, wanting to drive a car, like, yeah, the promise was if I put the effort in, I'd be able to drive a car. I remember committing to a summer just to do that. It's so true. But often in the Christian life, we have all these promises. And when we're singing, you know, you know true are your promises, and we say yes and amen, that yes and amen for me is that my life experiences are saying yes and amen. The, the kind of theological, the abstract information of Christ becomes a yes and amen because of commit to it, we put it into practice and it becomes a yes and amen in reality. But the challenge of commitment in this passage, we see these three would-be followers. And Jesus seems fairly harsh. Like, you know, he's sort of saying, you know, these followers are saying, well, we'll follow you, Jesus, but just a couple of things, just basic needs would be important, my own self-care, a home to live in. Um, and, you know, and family, surely they're the most important things, and I can have them and follow you as well. And it seems pretty harsh. And, you know, I was even talking to my mum my the other day. She was just back from a big week's Christian conference um, down in Cork, and one of the main speakers couldn't make it because her granddaughter was having an operation, so she sort of chose for family. And so, like, it's so obvious that she did the right thing. Like, she did what Christ would want her to do, spend time with her family, not putting church or Christian conference ahead. So I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, don't, don't love family and don't look after yourself. Actually, for so many people in the, sometimes in Christian ministry, religious ministry, they actually sort of sacrifice their family for the good of, of their Christian ministry, which is awful. 
or they burn themselves out so much because they're not looking after themselves. I think it's so good that our, our, you know, our pastor Rob is able to take time. You know, he's gone through so much in the last year with bereaving his, his brother. He's able to take time, and we're able to celebrate that, to rest up. I don't want to be led by someone who's broken and driven and tired and exhausted. So I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he's saying something a bit different. But I think it's interesting. The first follower said, you know, I will go wherever you go. I think that is kind of commitment, isn't it? It's like saying, yeah, I'll go wherever you go. But Jesus is saying, yeah, a lot of the time that will be good. But what about the times when I'm leading you to something that you're not so comfortable with? What about the times I'm leading you to commit to praying every day? What is about the time that I'm committing you to talk a bit more about me? What's about the time to sort of step out of your comfort zone? Will you go after me then? Or the next two would-be followers, you know? It's sort of a conditional yes. Um, they didn't quite know what commitment was. They sort of said, look, 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 we'll follow you, Jesus, but first. You know, but first let me do this, but first let me do that. And so, like, the quick question is, you know, who or what is our first? You know, what do you believe you must have in order to receive life joyfully? What do you believe you must have in order to receive life joyfully? So what are the conditions for your life that you can receive life joyfully? That's not happiness, a sort of sense of contentment and joy. You know, is it success? Is it happiness? Is it relationships? Is it friendships? Is it church? What is that first thing? I think that's what really Jesus is saying is like, what is your first? Because it's really interesting that language. Jesus is saying, you know, follow me, choose me first. But there are guys like, yeah, we'll follow you, but these are my first things. These are my first things. Good things so often can be, become God things. And for the Jewish people, these things are so crucial. A place to call home. And Jesus says, look, look, I don't have a real home. But home and the land was so important for Jewish identity. They'd been nomads. They'd been slaves for so long. And Jesus is saying, don't put that first. Family was such, like the Irish culture, was such an important part of their identity, of their ethnicity as, as Israelites. And again, she's saying, don't put that first. Put me first. Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book, um, I've gone blank now. What did he write again? Can remember? Anyone remember? Man's Search for Meaning, thank you. And, uh, and so... Um, he wrote this amazing quote, which I think he's basically saying what, what Jesus said, which I'll read out now if we've got there. Yeah, let's start with this. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. Don't aim at success. For success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. For those who know, Viktor Frankl was a sort of a psychoanalyst um, during pre-World War II, but because he was Jewish, he, he, he ended up going to a concentration camp, and he kind of put the reality of the human condition to practice, and he noticed that people in the most awful, dire situations, the people that got through them, was that they had meaning. And he kind of reflected on this on his life and wrote, wrote a book and, and sort of a, a form of psychotherapy. But I think he got it there. He got this idea that, you know, you know, the American Constitution talks about, you know, like my right to pursue happiness. But I think if you pursue that, you'll lose it. But Christ is saying, pursue me, seek first the kingdom and all these other things you'll have as well.
The image of the hand. Do we have anyone who's done that? Picture of a hand? Maybe not. Do we have anyone there? Is anything written on it? Okay, I'll go over and get it. This is Phoebe's. Okay. So Phoebe's five important things. Oh. Grapes. Strawberries. Sister. Mummy. And Daddy. Yes, I got that one. Well done. Anyone else? Thank you. Yeah, you need to do your one. You need to commit to that, Lena. Okay, grand. Any other ones? Oh, great. I'm just a few there. Come on up. Thanks, Reuben. Do you want me to read them out? Is that okay? So Reuben had five things were friends, family, shelter, food, and water. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in the middle was God and Jesus. Oh, that's, the, that's the answer. Good man. And uh, we've got Benjamin here. He's got God, school, Teddy's. Is that Teddy's ice cream? No, Teddy's. Teddy's, I was Teddy's, that's fine. I've got something else in my mind. Bed, and camera in that one. And family at the bottom as well. That's very good. Thank you. And then, was there one more? Thanks, Grace. Oh, there's a few here. So Grace says, my family, my friends, that's a really nice one, my school, my hobbies, camogie, Gaelic gymnastics, my house, and Grace is in the middle. And what's this one? Is this the other hand? Oh, that's you, Ingrid. So Ingrid has photos. Do you know where you remind me? Read it. Yeah, Ingrid has a job, relationship with God, friends and family, and music. Thanks, guys. The reason why I put this hand up is that... When I was in college, um, and I was talking to a friend who wouldn't necessarily be from a kind of Christian background, kind of a nominal Catholic background in Fusion UCD, and one night, probably at a bus stop, on the, waiting for the night link to come home, she kind of just sort of in a, in a haze of reflection and insight, she uh, says, I think, Scott, your faith is like a, like a hand. And she said this to me. She said, you know, for me, maybe God is one of the fingers, then my hobbies, and then... Uh, my friends, family, you know, my job or whatever. But he said, I think what you're trying to get at um, is that God and church and all those things you talk about aren't really one of your fingers. They're the thing in the middle of your palm. And that kind of flows, everything flows from that. So all those other five important things are really important or whatever they are, but there's something about the source that you're talking about seems to flow from that. And I thought that was the best example I've heard about what maybe Jesus is trying to get at. It's that commitment. What is in your... So we can sort of think about what is in your fingers really important things. But Jesus is sort of saying, what is in your palm? What is in your heart? What is the source of all things that flows from it? And the, finally, the result of commitment. Two things, I think, when we commit to things, we commit to Christ and his kingdom. There's a realness that comes into our lives. Something solid begins to kind of grow and develop in our lives. You see, when we're like that man at the plow, when we're slightly divided, slightly distracted, we can end up kind of in a kind of shallow, abstract kind of Christian life. But when we commit, the truth of things we sing and we believe actually begins to become real. And theology becomes experience, ritual becomes encounter, and, relationship, and religion becomes relationship. But it's, 
it's like so, so many people, you know, like, like I, you know, I can see that drift from their faith or not sure. There's lots of reasons, but I know one key reason I've reflected on is, is they haven't committed to integrating the ideas of God and his kingdom, integrating them into their day-to-day life. That's a challenge. That's hard. But I promise you, in the little bit that I've done, there's lots that I haven't integrated yet. I know so much more than I actually act out. I have so many good ideas and information and thoughts, but not so good. It's the idea of having that gym pass, but never going to the gym. But as we bit by bit integrate, commit to integrating his kingdom, things become real. And that's a great treasure. You know, Jesus talks about the man in the, the field who sold everything he had. That's commitment to buy that field and get the treasure inside. When the things we say and do, just we have that confidence that this is real. This is real. This is real stuff. Marina, a guy who was a book on prayer, and he said there was a person that was really struggling with their faith and were looking like they become agnostic and maybe atheist. And he said, I challenge you, you pray every day for six months and come back to me. And he did that. I know it's not simple, but it was just a good example. He came back and his faith was flourishing. So maybe there's so many things when we, Jesus says to follow us. There's so many things he advises, so many things he suggests, his life of character. Maybe one thing now in your hearts. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? What one thing maybe you can get stuck into, really commit, integrate it into your life? The other thing that commitment does as well as a realness in our lives is a rest in our hearts. Commitment isn't perfectionism. It's really important to remember that. Commitment is persevering, and there is a difference. You know, I work in a kind of a social worker in addiction and recovery, and so many people in addiction trying to get into recovery are so harsh on themselves and are trying to get this perfectionist sort of mentality, and so often they burn out and relapse. But there's sometimes, and there's other people that they persevere, they make mistakes and they can relapse, but you can actually see through that process, they're learning and growing. Persevering brings a humility and an openness of mistakes and failures, but it's the returning, it's the keep going, is what commitment is, not perfectionism. Another thing that way does rest in our hearts is that commitment isn't what I call stress-induced burnout. (laughs) but actually surrender-induced rest. And again, I see this in addiction recovery. Those who actually just surrender, which is a real like language in recovery, to it all, and no longer fight, no longer caught between two desires, but into the desire recovery, it becomes a great sense of rest. A divided heart is restless, but a heart is surrenders great rest. And Jesus said, you know, like this might be a harsh passage we've read about, but he also says, you know, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, you know. Come, follow me, take my yoke, that plowing thing, let's go together with this, let's learn, I will show you the learning of how to follow him, you know. And through that learning, I'm a teacher that's gentle and humbling, so when you make a mistake, we're not looking for perfectionism, I just want perseverance. And as you begin to gradually do that and learn from me, your life will become integrated, it'll become whole, your soul will find rest. Now, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What's the process of restoration? You know, he likes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside 
still waters, he restores my soul. But we've got to still be committed to these things. So to finish, get the guys to come back up. And we're just going to read uh, a few verses from Philippians, which is a great example of, of a man, Paul, in prison for his commitment. And, uh, and when we're singing this song as well, there'll be the, the, the offering as well. But just, you know, in your quietness, I just want to read Philippians chapter 3 some of those verses in the message front this is Paul writing to us writing to the church yes all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as my master firsthand everything I once thought I'd going for me is, is insignificant dog dung I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him I don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that keeps, comes from keeping a list of rules, what I could get, the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. I gave up all that interior stuff so that I would know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I've made it, or that I have made it, but I am well on my way reaching out for Christ who so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong, by no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm often running and I'm not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal, those of us who want everything God has for us. If any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. Now that we're on the right track, let's stay on it. Stick with me, friends. Keep track of those you see running the same course, headed for the same goal. There are many out there taking other paths, choosing other goals, and trying to get you to go along with them. I've warned you of them many times, sadly. I'm having to do it again. All that want is easy street. They hate Christ's cross, but Easy Street is a dead-end street. Those who live there make their bellies their gods, belches are their praises, all they can think of is their appetites. But there's a far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're awaiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He will make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he's putting everything as it should be under and around him.